Good morning, everyone. All right, let's try that again in the house. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> I'm glad that you guys are with us. Thank you so much for those of you who are joining online today. Thank you guys for being here in the house. It's our first Sunday back. It's our first 11 o'clock in months uh, with people in the room. Uh, we did have a celebration service back in June where we had some folks in here, but thank you guys for being here today, and thank you so much for joining in uh, live online. Isn't it great that now um, we have the option, and uh, so just glad that you guys, at least to see this much of you is great, so see this much of your face. So uh, glad that you're here today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, we're going to be there today. Um, I want to just uh, begin by praying and asking God to bless our time together. And Father, just uh, still ringing in my ears and in my head and my heart is your name. The name that is above all names. The powerful name of Jesus. And Father, we thank you for the great work that you did on the cross and we thank you so much for the great name of your son, the king of all kings. We thank you for Jesus. And Father, right now, for those who are in, that, in the room, God, I thank you for those who are joining us live online. And right now, I pray in this terribly unsettling time, this terribly disturbing time, that your Holy Spirit would lead us into peace, that you would lead us to be in conviction, God, that you would lead us to encouragement, and that you would lead us to action. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would lead and that you would guide this morning as we are taking a look at what your word says specifically about racism and race, racial reconciliation. Father, I pray that you would lead us and guide us from this very important, very important passage Lead us right now. We love you so much. We thank you for your great name. In your name, I pray. Amen. Amen. We're in kind of week three of this series called I Choose Love and really talking about what the Bible has to say about racism and racial reconciliation. And I, as I began, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but uh, a few weeks ago as we began this series, I made the caveat that this particular series is uncomfortable for me for a few reasons. One is, is my, I've never really been the focus of racism. I've, I've never experienced it. I have a lack of experience. Sometimes there's associated uh, indirect guilt associated with a message series like this. And then the potential that I might say something wrong in a very, very difficult time in our country and in our world. And, and I know that you probably have some of the same tension. You might have some of that same discomfort. And, and that's okay because the Holy Spirit, I believe, is stirring us. And there are times when he does lead us into peace and encouragement. But there's, time, there's a time for the church to be challenged. And so I'm asking from you for you to be open to God's moving in your life and in your church. And so today we come to this amazing passage, this example that we see of, of Jesus loving someone just like he loved us and giving us the example of how we should love the world. And in fact, it's kind of our springboard verse, John 13, 34, Jesus tells us a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And then he says, just as I have loved you, love one another. 
And so far in this series, we began in week one by talking about the fact that our pursuit as God's people, as the capital C Church and capital C Christians, ought to be not sameness, because that's not the way God designed us, but it ought to be oneness, oneness with purpose. And so we talked about that, and of course, last week, we discovered from this maybe a little more obscure to you or, or to, to us passage from Amos when um, we really took a look at the fact that prejudice is in fact a sin. And it's something that in the Old Testament, God used a man by the name of Amos to call out of repentance and call to repentance the nation of Israel. And today we're actually going to be tying that back in um, with this passage from John chapter 4. And today we're going to be taking a look at what it means to love like Jesus. And so if we discussed oneness in week one, if we discussed repentance in week two, this is the practical week. This is the week where it maybe comes all together. And over the course of the next three weeks, we're taking a look at specific related issues. And we're going to have panels, which I'm very excited about, people who are going to be sharing their experience. But today is very practical. And, and, and it ties into last week because it's interesting that we went from Amos now to taking a look at Jesus and this woman from Samaria. And I want to give you a little bit of a background, and some of you have heard the story of the woman at the well, this Samaritan woman. And when I even say that, that phrase, like the good Samaritan or the Samaritan woman, um, you have a positive outlook on that. You think of the word Samaritan, and you think that's a good thing, because we've given it a benevolent context. But in Jesus's day, the word Samaritan, the place of Samaria, was not a good thing. It wasn't a positive thing. There was a war that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans, and it kind of stems back from the time of Amos when he told the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, hey, it's time for you to get this right. It's time for you to let justice flow down like streams of water. They didn't, and the next thing that happens is they find themselves, actually it wasn't the next thing, it was quite a bit later, they find themselves um, not seeking God, and they find themselves in captivity by the Assyrians. And so there were Jews and Assyrians that were beginning to get married, and they had kids, and all of a sudden you had this group of people that were the result of that, they were called Samaritans. And it actually was a whole nation, a whole area that existed in the day of Jesus that was between Ju uh, Judea in the south and Galilee in the north. And it was like squanched right in there in between. So if you needed to travel from Galilee down to Ju uh, Judea, you would have to travel geographically through Samaria. Going from one place to the other, going from point A to point B meant that you somehow had to drive through Samaria. And to try to do otherwise would have been incredibly difficult. It would be like saying, those of you who are, you know, locals here, it would be like saying, hey, I got to go to 95, but I don't want to go through Bluffton. That's what it would be like. Not that I'm comparing people from Bluffton to people from Samaria. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that it would have been that difficult, but it was difficult. And there was such a huge racial and ethnic and cultural divide between the Jews of that day 
and the Samaritans that most Jews that would travel from point A to point B would do everything that they could to not travel through Samaria. They would travel far to the east and around Samaria, likely not because Samaria was not a good place and Samaria was maybe a dangerous place, although those may have been the, the, the case, but it was specifically because they hated the people that lived there. The Jewish people of that day considered Samaritans and called them dogs. They called them heathens. They called them half-breeds. And so there was a huge animosity between the Jews of that day and Samaritans. And Jesus finds himself in chapter 4 of John, as recorded by John. He finds himself having to travel, travel from Judea to Galilee. And he decides to travel on foot during the middle of the day through Samaria. Look at verse 4. John chapter 4, verse 4. It is recorded this way, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, why is that important? Because John gives us the picture that he had to pass through Samaria, which I've already described to you is geographically true, except that you could take another route. It might take you a lot longer, but you could take another route. And here's the point that I want to make today about verse 4 is I believe that the had to in John 4 verse 4 was the fact that Jesus was on mission and God called him to pass through Samaria. The had to was a missional had to, not a logistical had to. See, Jesus was called by God his Father to do something drastically and radically different. And John records it here that he had to pass through Samaria. And what happens is, is Jesus is traveling through Samaria and they come to this town of Sychar and it's about the sixth hour, which means that they had been traveling for six hours and it was probably at about noontime. And so he had been traveling for six hours. Now, um, I, I don't know you guys. I, I, I like road trips, but my road trips have to be under about four to five hours. Or I get to be cranky dad in the car. You can ask my kids. I get cranky after about four to five hours. And I realize that's pretty pathetic. Like that allows me to travel to Atlanta, Charlotte, and Jacksonville. And that's pretty much it by car. So I'm weak. I get it. Like that's me. And I can't imagine Jesus and his disciples traveling on foot for six hours in that climate in the middle of the day. And so he gets to this place, this town in Samaria called Sakar, and he stops there because Jacob's well is there. We're going to talk about Jacob's well in a minute. And Jesus stops there, and I love the fact that um, we see a little bit of his humanity because we often focus on the divinity of Jesus because he was all God and he is all man. And, and but here we get a great picture of his humanity because Jesus is tired and thirsty at this point in time. Wouldn't you be after traveling for six hours in the heat of the day? 
And he comes to Jacob's well, and he wants a drink. But he, being all God, knows that there's something about ready to happen. And I kind of look at this like maybe it doesn't really say this, so this is like Todd's version. Like he sent the disciples into town to look for food. Kind of like on a road trip, if I just want a moment after four or five hours of quiet, I'll send the family into Cracker Barrel after driving on I-16 for so long. Like, hey, you guys go in there, just give me a minute so I can just have peace and quiet. Jesus, I picture him like going, hey, guys, I need for you guys to go get some food. And they go into town and they pick up some food. But I think that Jesus had another reason for maybe doing that because I don't think his disciples could have handled the mission that he was on. I'm not sure that they would have agreed with the way he was about ready to handle what was going to go down. And we see him there at Jacob's well. Now, Jacob's well was a significant spiritual place for the Jews, but it was also a significant spiritual place for the Samaritans because this was something they had in common. In an area and in a geographic region where there was nothing that brought Jews and Samaritans together, Jesus picked probably the one place that in their ancestry would have meant something to both of them. Because this is where their ancestry would have overlapped, at Jacob's well. Jacob had dug this well. He had dug it for his family and for his future. And here's what happens in verse 7 of John chapter 4. A woman from Samaria came to drink water, and Jesus says, give me a drink. And then we read that his disciples, in parentheses, had gone away into the city to buy food. And you've already heard my version of what that might have been like. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. I heard one pastor say that we can't allow race or reason or religion to keep us from sharing the gospel with anyone. And I love that message. I love that message. And maybe unbeknownst to this Samaritan woman, she allows race and reason and religion to be a barrier from talking to Jesus. But that's not the point anyway. You see, Jesus did something that would have been culturally and, and from, from an ethnic standpoint, shocking. And that is, is he opened his mouth and he spoke to this Samaritan woman who was of a different race and a different ethnicity and a different culture and a different background. And all the etiquette in the world and all the rules and all the pretense in the world would have told Jesus just to remain silent. To at best not say to this woman anything at all. But Jesus opens his mouth and he begins a dialogue. And listen, church, I want you to hear, whether you're watching online or those of you here in the room or if you're watching right now or maybe later, that, that this, is, this is the first way that we can love like Jesus. You see, we love like Jesus when we refuse to allow our racial differences to keep us from relational dialogue. One pastor said 
the best way to share Jesus with someone is to begin to talk to them about them because that's everyone's favorite subject, themselves. <laughs> and Jesus begins this dialogue because he had a physical need for water that he could have easily provided on his own. Remember, he was all God. Could have easily provided on his own. But he opened his mouth and he spoke to this woman who everyone would have said, there's absolutely no way that you should be talking to her. And in doing so, he began to meet her need. You see, church, sometimes I think racial reconciliation begins with us just opening our mouth. It begins with us talking to someone else. Years ago, Cynthia and I were in Morocco. We were in this little province. Um, it was a Spanish province called Malia. There's two Spanish provinces on the African continent in Morocco. And this is the free area, the non-Muslim area of Morocco. And, and so we were doing ministry there. And one of the things that we were doing was we were handing out Bibles. And I've never seen, other than a New York City subway, I've never seen such a melting pot of cultures and races and religions and languages. It was amazing. There were people there that were from France and Spain and Morocco. And you, you heard so many different languages being spoken. But because we we were in a Spanish province. Most of the people's native tongue was Spanish. And I remember the missionaries that we were with, he was like, hey, our, the people of this town, they just want to be talked to. They want, they want someone to talk to. And so we're passing out Bibles. And he said, you know, just learn in, in their native tongue in, in Spanish to say, free gift, regalo gratis. And I'm sure I'm saying it wrong. We learned how to open our mouths. We learned how to say something to engage someone from a different culture, and I think that's half the battle, church, is engaging someone from a different race, engaging someone from a different ethnicity. But Jesus, not only did he engage relationally, he also remembered that he was there to serve spiritually. He was there to serve spiritually. It's interesting that this lady brings up the issue of race. She says, how in the world can you serve me, a Samaritan woman? And she brings up two things in that one verse, uh, in verse uh, 9 there. Uh, she brings up not only her race, but her social status. Because in that day and age, women had a different social status than they do today. In that day and age, they were lesser, far lesser than men in all the different cultures of that day and age. And so she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And Jesus decides that he is going to just break across all kind of racial and social lines to serve this woman. You see, she probably in that moment felt small, and insignificant, and she felt inferior because of what the world had told her, that she wasn't as good as Jews. And here a Jewish man was engaging in conversation with her. See, women didn't hold any kind of social or leadership or political uh, uh, value in that day and age. And Jesus chose not to allow the, the lack of social status to determine how or why he would meet her spiritual need. 
And so they begin this discussion about water, and look what he says in verse 13. He says to her, everyone who drinks of this water in Jacob's well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. By the way, this woman was drawing water in the middle of the day around noontime, which would have been wildly unusual because women didn't go to Jacob's well in the middle of the day. They would go early in the morning for a lot of different reasons, heat being one of them. But there she was, and there he was. And that's where we need to be. Breaking across not just racial boundaries, but breaking across social ones as well. See, we love like Jesus when we refuse to allow our social status to limit serving others. And unfortunately, I think that the church, when it comes to race and when it comes to social status, for so long, we've bowed to the idol of etiquette. And Jesus, in that moment, had he given in to the culture of that day, could have bowed to the idol of etiquette, but he knew that the gospel was at stake. He knew that racial reconciliation needed to take place in this woman's life and that it needed to take place in the lives of Samaritans. And you'll see that in just a moment. And so he uses water as an illustration, a metaphor for what he could provide. I love it that just a chapter earlier in John chapter 3, John records Jesus meeting with Nicodemus in the middle of the night. And you couldn't have two stories that are so incredibly different. Like when you look at John chapter 3 and John chapter 4, Jesus is meeting with Nicodemus, who is a righteous religious priest. He's involved in the religious leadership of the day, and he's meeting with him in the middle of the night and had this conversation about being born again, and Nicodemus is trying to understand, and Jesus is using the idea of being born again as a metaphor for what would happen spiritually. And in the next chapter, we see him meeting with this woman from Samaria, couldn't find two people that are more different, but Jesus understands that the spiritual need, listen, I want you to hear this, the spiritual need of all people is just the same. Whether they're religious and righteous, or whether they're looked at as inferior and less than, and Jesus understood that. The contrast between chapter three and chapter four is incredibly significant. And so Jesus offers her living water. And we love like Jesus and when we refuse to allow our social status to limit serving others. But Jesus goes on and he begins to share the message. By the way, this passage, two things that are significant about John chapter 4. One is, is that this is the longest recorded conversation that Jesus has with any one person. I want you to think about that for a moment that the longest recorded conversation that Jesus has with one person takes place with someone that he wasn't supposed to be even talking to. And the second thing is, is that this is the first time 
that he reveals himself and acknowledges to someone and to the world that he is the Messiah. And he reveals that to a Samaritan woman. Take a look at John chapter 4, 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, uh, they have this whole conversation, by the way, about worship and that sort of thing. Uh, that happens in a minute. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five. <laughs> and I'm sure the woman's like, whoa, you know a little bit too much about me. You have five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband, what you have said is true. Now, I used to be in sales years ago, and I'm kind of um, wondering, like at this point in time, as we see kind of this go on, we see in verse 25 and 26, check this out. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. They have this whole debate about worship and where worship should take place. Again, religion almost derails the opportunity to serve and to share the message of Jesus. The woman says to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. But when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And she's at the point where she almost like says, she almost accepts him. She almost like accepts him. And, and then they get into this, a little bit of a religious debate. And, and I wonder why Jesus didn't say to her at that point in time, hey, just accept me, your life can change. Jesus wanted to peel a few more layers because Jesus understood that she had a deeper hurt that there was a deeper need there that needed to be uncovered. And in that moment when she asked, how do I receive this, this eternal life, this living water, right then and there, like the sales guy in me that used to be in sales, goes, all right, Jesus, time to close the sale. That's what my boss would have told me years, years ago. Time, time to bring this thing home. And Jesus kind of keeps on going. And he does it because he wants her to reveal to herself and to God her deepest need. He understood that she needed to talk about this. And so he shares the message that he is the Messiah. And see, we love like Jesus when we refuse to allow the choices that other people make prevent us from sharing the message of Jesus. Man, some of us have maybe grew up in a church environment when we might look at someone and the choices that they've made, the behavior that they display or the way that they've lived their lives and we kind of think, I don't know if they're capable of believing. I don't know if they maybe haven't done like enough good or they've done too much bad and it prevents us from sharing the message that's what we can learn not to do here. Jesus understands the depth of her sin, and he loves her enough to share the message that he is the one who is the living water. He's the one that's the Messiah. And then the disciples come back into town. 
And I would imagine after they've gone into the town and they've gotten food and Jesus is there and he's talking to this woman that like everything in their culture says that he shouldn't be talking to. I'm sure the discussion as they came up over the hill and saw Jacob's well and saw Jesus speaking to this Samaritan woman, I'm sure the discussion was like, you got to be kidding me. Really? Because the disciples had, had been trying to prevent Jesus from doing certain ministry before. Maybe that's why he wanted them to go into town, right? So that he could do this. And look what happens in verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? In church, perhaps the biggest lesson that we have to learn when it comes to racial reconciliation. And the thing that we need to do to emulate Jesus is to not give in to the peer pressure of the world, screaming a certain protocol, screaming a, a certain way that we're supposed to be or act. You see, we love like Jesus when we refuse to allow racially rooted peer pressure to keep us from the big picture perspective. It's the fourth way that we can love like Jesus. When we value someone despite their differences, when we value them enough to share with them, regardless of what we may hear about what we've just done. The guys that visit Kairos, they understand this when they go to the prison systems and they share with people who are convicted of some horrific crimes. They know that that person is not beyond the scope of the salvation that Jesus offers. And we ought to know that no one is beyond the scope of the salvation and the living water that Jesus offers. We love like Jesus when we refuse to allow racially rooted peer pressure to keep us from the big picture Perspective. And here's the great news. I love this part to end. Verse 39 tells us the rest of the story. I love this. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him, Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. There's a whole message right there. He told me all that I ever did. That would have been shocking to them, right? And there's so much packed in that one statement. We don't have time to unpack it. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Some of you don't even let your own relatives stay with you for two days, okay? Maybe there's good reason for that, but you don't even do that. Jesus was someone from a different culture and a different ethnicity and a different race. And they hated the Samaritans. And by the time he was done loving her and serving her and sharing with her the message of Jesus, and she went out and told her friends and family, by the time that happened, they were welcoming this Jewish man into their home. Wow, what a turnaround. What an incredible turnaround. And it says, and many more believed because of his word. And look at this. They said to the woman, I love this. It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. It wasn't, their, it wasn't her belief any longer. It had become theirs. In church, 
Christ follower, I want you to realize that racial reconciliation is a part of the gospel. It may not be the gospel because the gospel of Jesus covers so many other things. It covers everything that we've ever done wrong, that we've ever done to miss the mark. That's literally what, what it means, uh, transgression or sin, to miss the mark of God's best. But racial reconciliation happens when we are about the gospel. And when we are about the gospel, racial reconciliation can happen. And listen, church, this is why we need to be about this. See, not only are we on mission to make this life better for our brothers and sisters, but we're on mission to make the next life better for our brothers and sisters. And sometimes it takes courage, and sometimes it takes bravery. But if we are truly going to model Jesus, and if we are truly going to do this the way that he loved us, we will follow his lead. And we will model what he did with this Samaritan woman. The boundaries that he crossed were amazing. In church, we don't have to go all the way to Morocco to do that. We can do it right in our neighborhoods. We can do it wherever we're from. We can do it right here on Hilton Head Island, right here in the South Carolina Low Country. We can do it where, wherever you are from. We can be a part of racial reconciliation and part of the gospel, and those two things can run parallel at the same time. We may need to get creative. We need to may find ways to do that in our neighborhoods and in our communities, but it's what God has called the church to. And we need to be about taking action on that call. Father, I thank you so much for this remarkable story that's a true story. God, I thank you so much for the example that Jesus gave us. God, the way that he, he relationally connected with her, the way that he served her, the way that he shared with her and then didn't give in to the etiquette of peer pressure or the peer pressure of etiquette. But he stood firm and he loved her and he shared with her. And Father, I pray that when you bring people and groups of people along our path, Father, I pray that you would allow us to have the courage and the bravery to share with them regardless of what their culture is, regardless of what our friends may say. God, I pray that we would cross racial and socioeconomic and, and social lines, Father, to share with people your message. God, help us to love like you loved. And in choosing love, God, I pray that we would look to you the one who came and died for our sins and gave his life up for us. We thank you for this message. God, I thank you for your example. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.